Father, I thank you, Lord, for being here with us today in this time of fellowship we have and that we can hear your word, that we are able to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for that, Father, and for your faithfulness to us. And as Brother Terry just said, Lord, that you on the cross, that you bore our sin, but not only that, Lord, you bore the curse and just have redeemed us body, soul, and spirit. And we're so thankful for that. So we ask you, Lord, that you'll speak to us today through your word. Give us the words of life and help us to be more faithful to you and to understand your character better, Lord. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you turn your Bibles to James chapter 1, we'll be back in James. James chapter 1. So we're going to be concentrating on verses 5 through 8. We'll read 2 through 8. And the title of the message is The Need, Commitment, and Source for Prayer. Beginning in verse 2, James writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials or temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works or produces endurance. But let endurance have her complete or perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So we've been looking the last few weeks, and James has been talking in those first few verses about the various and diverse types or trials or tests that we'll face as Christians And we said that God has a divine purpose in each and every one of them. And one of them is to produce endurance in us. That ability, we said, to stand on your feet and face the storm. So it's the idea of I'm not caving in. I'm not seeking a way out, a way of escape. But I've got my feet firmly planted here and I'm not going to deviate from the purpose to do God's will. And it's like Daniel and the three Hebrew boys. It said they purposed in their hearts that they were going to stay loyal to God no matter how much the pressure came. And so we said it's a loyalty and faith that can only come from a true love for God. That's got to be the source. But the point of trials, we said, is not just to produce endurance, but it's to bring us to spiritual maturity. Through the experience of the trial, we see that more clearly in Romans, a godly character, a godly proven character is produced, which that in turn produces this confident expectation that God was faithful to me through that trial. I didn't know how I was going to make it through it, but he was faithful to me. And I can trust him now for greater trials. There's a hope or an expectation. And it says in Romans that that expectation, that hope you have in God will never leave you ashamed. You step out in something bigger and you're not going to be let down. He's not going to let you be ashamed or disappointed when you trust him. So James is saying here so far, if you remain steadfast and endure, the end result will be a mature and complete Christian. That's what God wants to make us, a full grown son of God. And it says here at the end of verse four, you'll be perfect and entire Now, it says wanting nothing. I mean, it's the same word that begins verse 5, if you lack anything. So he's saying you'll be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. So he's saying even though James is kind of connecting these two together here, he's saying even though you'll be lacking nothing in the end of your trial, 
while the trial is going on, there may be something that you're lacking. And that brings me to the first of three points we want to talk about today. In trials, we have a lack or a need. So you can be in the middle of a trial, things are upside down, and things seem like a tangled mess, nothing makes sense, and you're having trouble seeing the purpose of what all's happening to you. How many times does that happen when you get in the middle of a trial? Or you just flat out don't know what to do. So you're saying, I know God has a purpose, he's sovereign, he's working all things out together for my good, but honestly at this point I just don't know which way to turn. I just don't know what to do. In essence, when we are in trial, what we need and lack is what he's telling us. Wisdom, that's what we lack. It's what we're destitute of. It's just not there. James uses that same word, if any of you lack. That word lack is used in chapter 2 and verse 15. And he says, if a brother or sister be naked, and it's the same word, destitute of daily food. I'm like, when you're destitute, that means you don't have it. You need it, but you don't have it. And that's what he's saying. If any of you lack wisdom, boy, we need it. He's saying, if any of you, he's saying, he's assuming there's people there in his readers in this congregation that he's addressing. He was a preacher. He was a pastor. He's saying, I know there's some of you there. If some of you, somebody out here is lacking wisdom. And really, I would say, isn't that all of us? Does anybody ever want to testify in here that they have been in a trial and never needed the wisdom of God? So he's saying, it's going to happen. That's basically what he's saying. And you will need wisdom because that's all of us. James was a Jew and he knew his Old Testament. And he knew from Psalm 73 that a godly person can be overwhelmed when in a trial and he needs the wisdom of God to maintain a right attitude. If you would turn to Psalm 73, put something there in James 1, please. I just want to look at Psalm 73 in light of that, because that's what we have going on here. Psalm 73, and we're not going to read the whole psalm, but look what it says beginning in verse 1. The psalmist writes, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such are as of a clean heart. But he said, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's confused. He needs some wisdom because he goes on to speak of all the things that are happening to the wicked, all the evil things they do. And yet he's saying it seems that God blesses them. They have more than they know what to do with. Look what it says in verse 7. He says, their eyes stand out with fatness. He says, they have more than their heart could wish. And he doesn't understand how that can be the case. Have you ever been there? You're in a trial. You're just believing to get your next meal, the next bill paid. You just lost your job. You see this heathen out there, and he's got this great job. All his bills are paid, and he seems happy, and you're thinking, what's the deal here? You know, all this faith message, where's this gotten me? All this holy living, it just seems like they're the ones that are being blessed and I'm not. You know, that happened to me once. I've been a leg trial. My wife's in one now. I couldn't walk, couldn't straighten out my leg. I didn't know when and if it would end. And I'm thinking, I'm seeing all these heathen out there. I'm like, they're drinking whiskey and they're walking around fine. Stumbling a little bit, but they're walking and I can't walk without crutches. And that's kind of what happens. That's happened to all of us. 
He's like, man, has this been in vain? Look what it says in verses 12 to 14. He says, behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. And he says, verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. He needs wisdom from God to see the big picture. Saying we got to get the big picture at times. And that's what happens. He goes into the sanctuary and God gives him understanding, gives him wisdom. Look in verse 17. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then, he said, I understood their end. When God gives him wisdom, he realizes then that he can trust the Lord. That what appears to be the way it is, isn't really the way it is going to end up. And I can trust the Lord. I can trust the Lord to guide me, to give me counsel. To let me see the purpose of the trial. And he says, and when this trial's over, he's going to receive me into glory. The wicked aren't going to have that. That's not going to happen for them. They're getting all the glory they're going to get right now. So look what it says in verses 21 to 26. Look what he says. Once God gave him understanding, he said, then my heart was grieved. I was pricked. He's convicted about questioning the Lord. He says, so foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. So the trial's not telling him that, but he's saying in the sanctuary, God is showing him that, giving him wisdom. He says, thou hast holding me up by my right hand. You will guide me with thy counsel. And afterward, when this is all over, you'll receive me to glory. And then look at what he says. We used to sing this song. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh And my heart fails. You ever felt like that? No strength. But he says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. You've destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. He says, verse 28, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. He understood it all, didn't he? And his trial wasn't a trial anymore. He realized, you're my portion. You're all I need. And he's satisfied with that. Because Job had the same problem. Getting back to Job, we've talked about him. He had the same problem in seeing the reason and the purpose of his trial. If you read the first few chapters, he cursed the day he was born. Cursed be the day I was born. He cursed the day he was born, but he refused to curse God and blame him for his troubles. He didn't. So he endured that trial with his questions and held on to his faith in God. And through it all, didn't God give him wisdom? God revealed to Job his wisdom, his purpose, a work he was trying to do to him. And that was the only way that could come about was through that trial. And so if you would turn to Job, you're not too far from it. Turn back to Job 28, because this is kind of right in the middle of this trial towards the end of his conversations with his friends that are accusing him of sin. This had to happen because of sin. But look what Job 28, it's interesting what is said in Job chapter 28. What he begins this talking about is he says, people dig deep in the earth to find gold and silver and rubies. Look what it says in verse 1. He says, surely there is a vein for the silver and a place for gold where they find it. Iron is taken out of the earth and brass is molten out of the stone. See, they'll dig deep to find these treasures. They'll go to all extents to dig down in the earth. People have done that forever, haven't they? But he's saying, there's one thing that can't be found by digging. 
And that's wisdom. Look what it says in verse 12. You can find gold and silver and rubies and all these things in the earth, but look what he says in verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? And I'll tell you, you think about it, think about Job. He's like Solomon. He'd lost everything, hadn't he? He lost his family, his health, his wealth. He had nothing. And in the middle of all that, here's the show's Job's godly character. He's just trying to understand why this is happening. He's not asking for where is wealth or where is my health or how can I get more children, is he? He's not asking any of that, is he? He's saying, I want wisdom. That's the one thing he's after. God, just come and show me why has all this happened to me? I think that's something else. He's asking for wisdom. And he says he knows where it comes from. Look what it says, verse 20. He says, from whence come wisdom? And where is the place of understanding? He says it's right there in verse 23. God understands the way thereof, and he knows the place thereof. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under heaven. He's saying, with God is wisdom. He realizes that. And that's what we need to see. That's where the wisdom we have when we're in trials, to understand them. What's going on? What's the purpose? It's with God. And he ends, look what he says in verse 28 to end that. He says, unto man, God says this, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And depart from evil, that will give you understanding. And so he stayed with it, didn't he? And sometimes the purpose of our trial isn't clear, but if we will just stay with it, like the psalmist, like Job did, he'll show you a way that'll give you experiential knowledge. That's wisdom, right? Job experienced God's answer, experienced God's wisdom in this trial. That couldn't be taken away from him. Because at the end of all of this that he went through, he said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. He had knowledge He'd heard the Bible, heard the word, heard whatever, but he says, I heard of thee, I had this knowledge. He says at the end, though, when God appears to him and speaks to him and gives him divine wisdom, he says, but now I have seen thee with my eye. He's not talking about literally physically saw God. Spiritual sight is saying what he had. He could see God spiritually. He said, I had head knowledge, but now I know. Now I have wisdom, not because I read it in a book, but because I've experienced you, I know about you. And what does that cause with him? So it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We have to realize we are nothing. That's what it's saying. Totally dependent on him. He has everything we need. Because Job through that, when he saw God, he said, I see myself. He says, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So the point is here, through trials, we don't understand God will give us wisdom. He did it for Job, did it for the psalmist. And I'm saying, Paul, when he was being stoned, I don't think he understood, you know, why is this happening? While that's going on, he's probably wondering what in the world is going on here. Here's what he wrote. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. He says, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. He's saying, I was burdened excessively beyond my strength. When we get in a trial and things are overwhelming, isn't that when we say, I can't take anymore. This is just beyond me. Wanting to hold on. Paul said it was even worse than that. 
worse than just beyond his strength. He said, we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. He knew it was all over. And all I could sense inside of me is it's all over. I got a death sentence. Why? Why did that happen to Paul? Why did God put him through that trial? Because he's trying to give him some wisdom and teach him something that was the only way he could teach him. You know what he went on to say? Had that sentence of death in ourselves so that, here's the reason why God did that. We would not trust in ourselves, but from God who raises the dead. He had to learn, have the wisdom that no matter how bad it gets, even to where you're the point of, I'm a dead man. Something's not right. I'm about ready to go. But he says, God got me to that point to where I'm not trusting in myself at all. I'm trusting in him. He gained experiential wisdom. So God wasn't trying to destroy Paul. And sometimes that's what it feels like he's trying to do to us, doesn't it? How many times was Paul cast down? He says, I was cast down, but yet not destroyed. When our wisdom and our plans and our strength run out and we're faced with a dead end street, that's when God will tell us, good, that's where I want you to be. Now, trust in me and I'll deliver you. And that's what Paul learned because he went on to say he learned. He said, I had this sentence of death, but I learned not to trust in myself, but in the God who raises the dead. And he said he delivered us from so great a death. We could say so great a trial. And Paul went on to say, because of that, I know he will deliver us in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. That God that delivered me. Think back on the trials we've been through, some more than others. Some have been in this faith walk longer. And he's shown his faithfulness through some, I mean, some terrible times. And we could say with Paul, he delivered me then and he will yet deliver me in the future. And we've got that experiential wisdom and that comes from staying with it and praying and asking God to show you in the midst of a trial. What is going on here? He'll show you. But we don't not only need to have that wisdom to see the purpose in our trials. We also need wisdom when we're in a trial to make decisions and take actions that we want them to be in line with God's will, don't we? Because that's the way we know he'll bless us. So we need the wisdom to do that, not take the wrong course. That's not his will for our lives. And that's what we're after. That's the kind of wisdom we need. That practical wisdom that Solomon had to meet the trials of daily life. So he said when Solomon became king, he said, I'm just a young boy and I've got to guide all these people. He's like, I don't know what to do. And he asked God to give him wisdom and God says, I'll give it to you. And so you have a case saying practical wisdom in daily life. First Kings 3, you got a case where you have two harlots, it says they had babies three days apart. And one of them laid on hers at night and killed it. And she traded her dead baby for the other one's live baby. The lady that had her baby taken from him, she realizes, this dead kid, this isn't my kid. And the other one's like, no, that is your kid. And both of them said, the live baby's mine. Both women were saying that. So they bring the case before Solomon, don't they? Solomon listens to both sides and he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. Somebody get a sword. We're going to cut that baby in half. And each of you are going to get half. And we know the story, the one whose baby it really was says, no, no, give her the baby. But the lady who knew that wasn't her baby, she's like, sounds fair to me. You know, just cut it in half. But that answered Solomon's question, didn't it? Now, you read that and you think, well, man, that guy, he's got some street smarts about him. He's a cool dude. Is that what it was? 
No, it wasn't, because if you read 1 Kings 3.28 at the end of that chapter, here's what the Bible tells us. It says, all Israel, they heard of that. They heard of the judgment which the king had judged. And it said, Israel feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. That's what enabled him to do that. The wisdom of God was in him. And that's the practical wisdom and trials that God is promising to us. So if we lack that wisdom, we don't, we're in the midst of a situation. It could be anything. It could be with your husband, your kids, a financial thing, healing, and you're just not sure what to do. We're destitute of wisdom. God says he'll give it to us. The ability to apply what we've learned to the problems of life. Like we said before, though, if you never get in the word, how's he going to teach you? How's he going to give you wisdom? That's part of it, isn't it? Searching the scriptures. And where does it start? We already talked about that. I already said it once. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm saying that's crucial. It's crucial because when you fear God, you realize then that you are going to be morally responsible to him for all the decisions and actions you take. And that, when you know that, that consciousness of that day coming, you're going to have to be responsible to him, causes you to seek him. What should I do, Lord? I want to do your will. I want you to bless me in what I'm doing. So wisdom, though, it's more than knowledge, like we said. So if you say about somebody, well, he really knows his Bible well, all you're saying about that person at that point is he's a knowledgeable person. But if he, that same person, knows how to use his Bible to understand life and the world around him, and he can use what he knows about the Bible to conduct his affairs and help other people conduct their affairs through this maze that we call life. We don't know which way to turn. You turn the wrong way. It's a dead-end street. Well, we want to get the cheese. We want to take the right way, and only God can tell us that. So when you know that, how to practically apply the knowledge you've learned, that's when knowledge passes into wisdom. And so God has promised to give us the knowledge we lack. You're in Job, not too far from Proverbs. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 2, we'll see that. Beginning in verse 1, Solomon writes, My son... He says, if you will receive my words and hide my commandments with thee. So that right there says we have to read the word and listen and pay attention. He says, so that you incline your ear unto what? Wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. So you're reading the word and saying, how does this apply to my life? As I'm reading the commandments, reading the word. He says, yea, if you cry after knowledge and lift up thy voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hid treasure, then you'll understand what? The fear of the Lord and you'll find the knowledge of God. Look in verse 6. For the Lord gives what? Wisdom. Out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He lays up sound wisdom for the righteous. He's a buckler to them that walk uprightly. He keeps the past of judgment and preserves the way of his saints. And then you'll understand righteousness and judgment and equity. Yea, you'll understand what path you should take. That's what he promises. God promises to give that to us. And when wisdom is entered into thy heart and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, discretion shall preserve you and understanding, he says, shall keep you. And how does that come? 
It's not just from reading the Bible, but it's also the presence of the Holy Spirit with you as you read and as you pray and living in you. That's how that understanding comes and your eyes are opened. It's a spiritual thing. So how does that work? Somebody does you wrong, let's say. So they said something that offended you and they didn't even realize they had. They offended you. And it's a trial, isn't it? Tell me that's not a trial when that happens. So what should you do? What do you do? Let them know? Tell them off? I mean, that's where you need wisdom, don't you? And if you get your wisdom from the TV, you're going to do the wrong thing. Because we think the cool people are the ones that don't take that stuff from anybody, right? We need practical wisdom. But if you pray and pick up your Bible, you could read in Proverbs 19.11, it tells you this. A person's wisdom or discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. So there's times when somebody does something, and it's just better just that it's your glory, it's your boast, sometimes just to overlook it. Some things you just let it go. Now, if it's a big enough deal, we know in Matthew 18, you need to go to them and talk to them about it. But a lot of times you just need to overlook things. That's when the Bible talks about being forbearing to one another. That's where the wisdom comes from. Or Proverbs eleven twelve says, he that is void of wisdom despises his neighbor. A person without wisdom will talk his neighbor down is what it's saying. Because he goes on to say, but a man of understanding keeps silent holds his peace. So like they say, a smart man knows what to say, but a wise man knows when not to say it. And practical wisdom, that's just one thing. We could go on and on and on giving examples, but it's in his word and it's by the Holy Spirit. It'll show you what to do. The second thing to go back to James, we want to look at is we need to ask for wisdom but the second thing we want to look at is how are we to ask? And look what it says in verse 6. So we need wisdom and we ask God and it says, but when we ask, we need to ask how. What does it say at the beginning of verse 6? Ask in faith, nothing wavering. So he's saying ask in faith. Well, I mean, we all know what faith is. That absolute confidence, absolute confidence that God is going to give us what we ask. He's saying that's the way you need to ask. It's to expect him to do what he's promised to do. It's that expectation he's going to do. That's what faith is. Or to say it another way and listen to this is it's the wholehearted attitude of a full and unquestioning committal to dependence upon God. Let me say that again. It's the wholehearted attitude of a full and unquestioning committal to and dependence on God. It's a fixed heart is what faith is. Now that got your attention a little more. The other one we've heard too many times that it just tends to run in one ear and out the other. But that is what faith is. You would turn back again. I'm, got to, I'm just running around a little bit. I'm sorry. But if you would turn to Psalm 57. So we're talking about it's a fixed heart. I want to look at a couple places here in the Psalms. And in Psalm 57, the background of that psalm is we're talking about trials and what it means to have faith and look to the Lord. David is in a major trial. Saul's after him, hunting him like a dog, and he's hiding in a cave. Look what it says here. Psalm 57, David says, Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me, for my soul does what? 
Trust in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings I will make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God, most high unto God, that performs all things for me. And when I do that, he says, he shall send from heaven and save from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. That's what God will do. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. But David says, in the meantime, my soul, verse 4, is among lions. I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. But he says, be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. They've prepared a net for my steps, and my soul is bowed down. They've digged a pit before me under the midst whereof they are fallen themselves. But look what he says in verse 7. But my heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. You're the one I'm trusting in no matter what. He says, I will sing and give praise. Awake up, my glory. Awake up, psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. It doesn't matter about this trial. My heart's fixed. I'll sing unto thee among the nations, for thy mercy is great unto the heavens, thy truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above the earth. He's saying his heart is fixed in that trial, trusting in the Lord. That's what faith is. He's not looking anywhere else. And if you would also turn to Psalm 112. Psalm 112, beginning in verse 5. It says this, a good man shows favor and lends. He'll guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be an everlasting remembrance. And it says he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. And why is that? Because it says his heart is what? Fixed. Doing what? Trusting in the Lord. That's the only way you can trust in the Lord. Is you have to have a fixed heart. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid, it says, until he see his desire upon his enemies. So trusting in the Lord, faith, and that's how we're to pray, is to have a heart that is fixed, firm, stable, and steadfast. It's committed to the faithfulness of God. And we'll say in a few minutes, we can be committed to God like that because he's that committed to us. And we'll see that. With his whole heart, isn't he? God is, whether we know that or not, he is committed to us as his children with his whole heart. That's what he says. If you go back to James, he says we're to ask in faith. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith, he says, nothing wavering or doubting. It's just the opposite of what we were talking about, having a fixed heart. It's the opposite of being committed, steadfast, or fixed. It means to be uncertain. That word wavering, to be at odds with oneself. It's the picture of a person who has no allegiance either way. Rather than being committed to God, he's not committed either way. He's not committed to anyone. There's no stability there. Because James goes on, he, he gives this illustration. He lived in Galilee near the ocean, and he likes to use illustrations out of nature. He says it should be nothing doubting. He says, why? Here's the illustration. For he that wavers or doubts is like what? This is what he's like. This is the picture. A wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. So it's not so much a wave rising and falling as a wave that when the wind hits it from whatever direction, it takes that shape and it takes that form. The wind blows one way and it's got this shape. The wind blows another, it's got another shape. It's tossed to and fro. That's what it means. 
So it responds. What shapes the sea wave? It's the wind, this force from without, because there is no stability within. You think about it, water and the sea, there is no stability in water, is there? No inner stability. Unstable by nature. And he's saying that is the picture of the doubter. He's insecure and unsteady. He's as insecure and unsteady as a boat would be that's being rocked in the turbulent sea. He has no firm inner will. He's just like that wave being tossed around. His mind can't just get fixed on I'm trusting the Lord. It can't get fixed on that. Ephesians 4, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That's an immature person. God, we have to see, he wants to bless the person. Give him what he needs, but he can't. And here's why. Because faith, have you ever heard faith is like a hand that reaches out and receives a gift? That's all it is. There's no glory. There's no anything to be praised for. You're just reaching out and taking a gift. But he's saying it's like a person that is one moment reaching out their hand and then they're closing it and reaching it out and closing it. They're unstable in that way. God wants to put the gift in there, but he can't because the hand won't steadfastly just stay open to receive. He wants to do it. He wants to deposit that gift. And so look what he says here in verse 7. This is a command. We said there's over 60 imperatives in the book of James, and an imperative is just meaning it's a command. It's not an option. And he gives a command here. He says, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. I mean, that is kind of stern if you really just listen to what it's saying. He's saying, I forbid that person that is like that, that it does not have a steadfast, committed heart to receiving what he prayed for from the Lord. He says, I forbid that person from supposing he's going to get anything. Don't suppose that is what he's saying. And he's saying it's actually in a derogatory way. It actually says, don't let that person, don't let that person think he's going to get anything. Don't let him suppose that person. And who wants to be that person? And that's kind of his point. Nobody wants to be that person. And so James is saying, don't do that. <laughs> because that person's not going to get anything. And you don't want to be that. <laughs> he's trying to tell us here, trying to help us out. So let me ask you something. Does that mean you couldn't have a moment when you're trusting the Lord for something that you have a moment where you're plagued with doubts? Does that mean it's all over? You know, Romans 4.20, the same word is used for waver and doubt. It says this about Abraham, for he did not waver, the same word, at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And you get the impression from that that Abraham was just Mr. Steadfast from the day he received that word about Isaac to the end. But it wasn't that way, was it? If you go back and read, you can read Genesis 17. And when the Lord appeared to Abraham and he says, I want you to change your wife's name, Sarai, to Sarah, because you're going to have a baby. It says he fell on his face laughing at <laughs> what God had told him. Well, that doesn't sound like he's got a steadfast faith, does it? Fell on his face laughing about it. <laughs> guy 99, that's crazy. But yet it says he was steadfast in his faith because that's, that was his overall walk. So that doesn't mean you can't have a doubt or a moment or whatever and it's all over and you got to quit and I don't have faith. And <laughs> no, that's not the point. Or what about the man with the epileptic boy? 
And he's struggling if you can do anything. And what did Jesus say to him? If I can do anything, if you can believe. Well, he's struggling, isn't he? He's struggling, but it's not the same because he's wanting to trust him, isn't he? He said, Lord, I want to believe. Help thou mine unbelief. He's crying to him, crying out to him. And what happened? Jesus did, didn't he? He helped his unbelief. But he says there, hey, if you got your eyes pointing both ways, you're looking at this is what God promised, but this is what, you know, he said, don't let that man suppose he receive anything. Because look what he goes on to say in verse 8. Verse 8, he says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And that's the second word he uses there, double-minded. This is a word literally James made up. It's the word dipsukos. Double-souled. It's nowhere in Greek literature. It just started here in the Bible. James made it up. So it's a person that has a divided attitude. It's like he's got two personalities living inside of him, two souls, two minds. And both are in conflict with each other. So one person that's inside of him, if you can picture you got two people, God, I trust you. And the other one looks at the world and like, man, you make a lot of sense. And he's got two of them going at the same time. A double-souled, a double-minded person. He's got this inner conflict. It's like there's an internal civil war going on. Can't make up his mind. And Jay says a man like that, he's not just unstable in trials and asking for wisdom, but he says what at the end of verse 8? It says he is unstable in all of his ways. And so he can't be committed to God. That's what makes him unstable. He doesn't have an anchor in his soul, as it says in Hebrews. We need to have that faith that it becomes an anchor to our soul and gives us stability like an anchor does to a ship. So his inability to fully expect God to answer his prayer, to be faithful to him, it says it affects every aspect of his life. All of life's experiences, he becomes an unreliable person. That's what it says. That's what the Word of God says. And like it has been said, the man who does not trust God cannot be trusted by men. And that's what James is saying here. And what did our Lord say? So we're saying he's, this guy's split in half. It's like he's got a split personality. Well, I don't believe in that. Well, that's what he's talking about. And Jesus said what about divided loyalties? He said no man can serve two masters, didn't he? It can't stand. And James is saying a man that is living that way, he's not talking about the fact that one's going to win out over the other eventually. He's saying, but when you're in that dilemma, when you're living that split personality with that civil war, said it creates a problem in the present. Because when you're looking at God or things seem to be going well, you think he loves me. But then in the trial, things start taking a turn for the worse. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And I mean, you're like, oh, you know, that just creates a problem. Pulling against each other, those two minds within you. Isn't that what it's like? That's what it's like. And so what needs to happen, as I heard a guy say, is that person needs some heavenly surgery. Some heavenly surgery to make the two souls one. And it'll work. And God will do it. He would love to do that kind of surgery on you. Joshua told the children of Israel, what did he say to them? Choose you this day whom you will serve. But he said, as for me and my house, I've got a single undivided heart. Me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to serve Baal too. And Elijah challenged the people. He says, how long are you going to halt? The word means limp, waver. How long are you going to halt? It's just got you in a bad state between two opinions. How long are you going to do that, he tells them. He says, if the Lord is God, 
then follow him. Forget the other. But if Baal's God, then follow him. But you're just limping and wavering, you know, between two opinions. Make up your mind, he's saying. Because that's what James is saying. When you're like that, wavering makes you unstable in everything you do. You've got to be fully committed. And God wants to bless people that are fully committed to his faithfulness. Second Chronicles 16 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong. He's looking for opportunities to do that in behalf of them whose heart is, the King James says, perfect. I think a better way of understanding that is whose heart is completely his or a heart that is devoted to him. Because it's, we look at ourselves like, well, then I don't qualify because my heart's not perfect. I know it's not. But your heart can be where you still know you need some work done on you, but you could still be completely his or devoted to him, right? And that's really what that word means. And so God wants us to trust him for what we lack. He wants us to be fully committed to him, to pray with faith and not to doubt. That's how we should pray. And now I want to jump back and I want to talk about why. Why should we pray in faith as an encouragement? So we're back in James, and here's why we should pray in faith, because of the source, our giving and generous God. That's my third point, and look what it says in verse 5. Back to verse 5, he says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it says, and it shall be given him. Now literally, the Greek reads like this. This is how the literal Greek would read. Let him ask of the giving God. Let him ask of the giving God. The translators, if they took these words the way it's written in Greek, if you can read Greek, it would just sound wooden. It would sound weird to us. So they have to make it smooth. That's just what happens in a translation. But James is describing God. It's an adjective. The giving God. He's describing him in that way, and he's saying... Here's what he's saying. That is always true about God. Always true. So God is also loving. He's also holy. He's also just. He's all those things. But he is also always giving. It's his nature all the time. And so what that's telling us is, so he says, if you have a lack, if you have a need, ask of God. He's the source and he is the giving God. So always we can come and ask for what we need. And he isn't going to tell us this. This is what we can know by that. If you listen up, this is important. He says, God's not going to say, well, yesterday I was the giving God, but today I'm feeling a little bit more like the holy and just God. So come back tomorrow and I might be back in a giving frame of mind, but I kind of lost that. That's the way we are at times. Oh, I'm kind of in a generous mood. You'll hear somebody, oh, he's in a generous mood. God's always in a generous mood. It never leaves. That's what he's saying. And the other thing is, he's a giving God and he's not like Scrooge. He's not a penny pincher because it says here he gives generously. And that's what it says. Look in verse 5. Let him ask of God, the giving God, that gives to all men liberally. And liberally means generously. And the Greek word, again, I hate to get into a bunch of Greek stuff here, but Liberally means wholeheartedly and with a singleness of purpose. And so that is how the giving God gives. 
when we come to Him in prayer with a selfless, total concern for you when you pray. When you come and ask Him for wisdom, He's wholehearted about it. He's got this total concern with you and a preoccupation that He is going to give you what you need and keep giving. That's what it means when it says liberally. I've got nothing else to do but to give and give and give. That is the nature of God. And he goes on to say what there in verse 5. Gives to all men liberally and it says he upbraids us not for asking. And that means he's not going to heap insults on us. So he's not going to put you down. He isn't going to say, it's you again? How many times are you? This is like the 10th time today. You've come and asked me for help and wisdom. How many more times are you going to come? He doesn't do that. I mean, have you ever had a boss or a store clerk that, you know, you've asked them a question, and you have to ask them another because you didn't quite understand. Maybe they mumbled or just whatever, and you can just feel that disdain on their face and in their voice. You know, it's like, you idiot. How many times do I have to tell you? You don't have it yet? You don't understand? How many times are you going to come here? Listen, he's saying God will never do that to us. He is not like that. So he doesn't complain that like, look, how much wisdom do you need in a day? How much do you need? Really? How much do you think I got? He never is going to say that. You're asking for too much. He's never going to say that. He isn't going to say, well, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Stop. What did you do with the wisdom I gave you last week? You didn't even use it. And you're back here again? He says he's not going to do that. Or look how you were last week, last month, or, you know, who are you to come to me? It's none of that with God. That's what he's saying there when it's saying he upbraideth not. And so what I'm saying is, we, listen up here, we have got to ground our faith. So this principle applies to everything, whether it's wisdom, healing, finances, deliverance, spiritual growth, whatever the lack we have. Our faith has got to be grounded in God's character. And by that, I mean that he has a love and concern for us, that his character is he is generous, he is giving, and he's not going to get on your case for coming to him no matter how much or how much you ask about any of it. You've got to see that. Because you can't trust somebody that you think isn't going to give, isn't generous, doesn't have your best interest at heart. It, It shuts that down. And we've got to see that. We really do. That's what he's telling us here through all this. God has a love and concern for us that we'll never understand, but we have got to believe that. We really do. Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. Psalm 84, 11. That's what Jesus bases what he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 is that we can come and ask and seek and all that because of God's character, because of his nature. So turn over there, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 7. And look what it says. Matthew 7, 7. Jesus says this. He says, ask, and it what? Shall be given. The same things. Where do you think James got it from? Ask, and it shall be given you. No ifs, ands, buts about it. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you for everyone that asks receives. 
He that seeks finds to him that knocks it shall be opened. And he's saying, why can I say that? Why do I say that? The Lord says, he says, well, what man of you is there of you whom if his son asked bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? No one does that that's a father. And he says in verse 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, look at the next three words. He's saying, you're an evil father. You don't do that to your kids. And what does he say? How much more with the character of God, who is the source of all goodness and giving? He says, how much more shall your father, who is in heaven, give good gifts? things to them that ask him. Man, if that is not an encouragement, we've got to see that. It's his character, his nature. It's what he wants to do to give and be generous and bless us. Give us what we ask. So the other reason, go back to James, that we can have faith is because we know that God is an honest being. He's not going to lie. He's not a liar. So he pledges to us here in James that if we have a lack and if we ask, he pledges that God will give. Look what it says there at the end of verse 5. Let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally. He doesn't upbraid. And what does it say? It shall be given him. It doesn't say it might be given him. It doesn't say maybe, but it shall be. That is a certainty. So I would say that God has pledged himself and his honor to do what he said. Hasn't he? I mean, that's what he said. Give us what we're asking him for, what we're trusting him for. All he's telling us there in James, what we talked about in the middle was we have a responsibility, don't we? He's saying God is committed to that. He's committed to you. We have a responsibility, right? He's not Santa Claus. So we have to ask according to his will. We have to make sure we have sin out of our lives. We can't have unforgiveness there. But you get those things dealt with where your heart's right with God. He is committed to doing it. He just said he is. The problem is we have to be committed. But the point is, if you could see how committed he is to you, it should make it easy to be committed to him. Why doubt? Why not leave your hand open and let him put that answer in there? Why shut it? Keep it open. We've got a responsibility, but hey, he wants to bless us. James says, let him ask in faith. Jesus says, have faith in God. And we want to please the Lord. We're back to this simple Hebrews 11, that without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Sometimes when you're, it's easy to say when everything's going good in your life. But when you're in a major trial, you're hurting, you just lost your job, it's hard to do that, isn't it? It's hard to believe he is in the sense he's with you and he's for you because it seems just the opposite of that. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And when you're in a trial, it is hard to diligently seek him. You tend to want to think about your situation, don't you? Instead of seeking him. But he says he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's what faith is. Trust in him that way. And so how can we be assured? How can we be assured that God's as giving as James says he is? He says he'll do it. He shall give. How can we be assured of that? It sounds too good to be true. How can we trust that God is giving and will give us the wisdom that we need? And the Bible tells us that. That's not hard to answer. Because when we see the most wise and giving thing that he ever 
did, and that was what? He gave his son Jesus to the cross for us. Romans 8.32 says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? So if in his wisdom he solved our sin problem and gave him up for us all, Paul says, how will he not freely give us all things? And that word freely means graciously. So throw your doubts away. Isn't that what it's saying? I know that's easier said than done. But we need to see that. We need to think about the character of God when we're trusting him. And we need to be committed to that. That yes, he does love me. Yes, I can trust him. And yes, he will give me what I need. He's a giving God. We've sung this song in the past. He giveth more grace because that's what he is. It says he gives more grace when the burden grows greater. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he adds his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. And the chorus says, his love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. And the second verse says, we didn't sing this, but here's what it says. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. That's the God we serve. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, I just ask you to make this word real to our lives and help us to meditate and realize, Lord, open the eyes of our understanding that we can see the love and power that you have promised us in the Lord Jesus Christ and that your love, grace, and mercy, Lord, is ever extended our way. And help us to see, Lord, that we need to keep our hand open to you, that you can place in there what you've promised us. That's what you want to do. You want to bless us. You are a giving God, Lord. I just ask you to make all of that real, and in the midst of our trial, you will give us the wisdom, the direction, the purpose. You'll help us to see all of that, Lord, so that we can come through it and have that experiential knowledge of you and know that we can trust you in greater situations, Lord, and that you'll bring us to complete maturity. That's what you want, our good, our complete maturity. I ask, Lord, you'll make that real to all of us, and that's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.